Thank you for listening to the FBH podcast. For more information about our church, feel free to visit www.fbhanford.org. Hey, good morning, church. How we doing? Woo! Okay, cool. Good, good, good. If you're online, shout woo at the screen as well. We're happy to, uh, to be here with you. My name's Peter Anderson. I'm the senior pastor here at FBH. If you're new with us, you caught us at a good time. Uh, we are uh, trudging through, marching through, uh, gallivanting through uh, love. Where I was trying to think of like what would be like lighter than trudging. Uh, love Where You Live, a series where, man, our goal is just to talk about how it is that we can best love our community, right? Right where we are, uh, right where we're currently currently at. And essentially we're talking through like, what is it that our church, like how do we want to function? What is it that we want to look like as we do our best to love God, to love people, to, to serve the world? Like that's our mission here. And in order to do that, we need to be about making disciples for Jesus. So we don't sugarcoat that here. Like that's our goal is we want to make disciples for Jesus. So if you're like a first time visitor here, cards on the table, we hope that you become a disciple of Jesus at some point. That's it. That, like, that's, like, if you're in church for any other reason, I'm sorry. Like, our goal is to make you a disciple of Jesus. And so we're going to be jumping around in Scripture a little bit today, but we are going to be diving in a little bit deeper into Luke chapter 10. So you can flip your Bibles open there. It'll be on the screen eventually. But as you're getting there, uh, I want to talk about my middle son. My middle son's name is Owen, and today is Owen's 10th birthday. I know, exciting for him. Uh, it reminds me that I'm aging. I have three kids in double digits, so that's fun. Um, but uh, as I was thinking about like this message, that as I was putting it together, and uh, I, I knew that I wanted to to talk about this kid because this is this whole message is about how do we love people well, right? And and the Cliff Notes version is is you're in community with people, like that's how you love people uh, best. And and so Owen is a whole lot of things. Owen. Um, he is a, he's a musician. He's a kid that if he hears a song and on YouTube or whatever, he's like, I could play that. And then goes and sits down at the piano and tries to figure out how to play it. And it's some butchered version of it at this point, but it's beautiful because he's my son and no one's better at piano than you are as a child, right? Um, and uh, so he's a musician. Uh, Owen is, uh, he's an athlete. Things come naturally to him for the most part. And so he can just jump into whatever sport and, and he tends to thrive in that way, which is great. He's incredibly smart. And so so we homeschool our kids, and so um, oftentimes in the mornings, um, he'll get done with his work, like, for the day, and Sarah will, like, not have to teach him anything, and she's like, wait, you're done? I'm like, yeah, I'm done. I'm like, okay, go do something else then, um, and, uh, and so that's the cool part. One of my favorite things about Owen is he does do other things, so he will go. He's like a kid who will sit and tinker and build and all this stuff, so even yesterday, uh, we had his, uh, his birthday party, and one of the things he got was, like, some of these stem sets. You guys have seen those, where it's, like, it's, like, balsa wood and like uh, like small engines like f f like put together with batteries that sort of thing <laughs> the engine's not made of a battery that's weird it's its power source i'm not an engineer anyway so Owen, oh, uh, these things are supposed to take a long time and like, like, oh, cool, you got this set that it should take you a couple weeks to be able to put all these things together. Like, that's kind of what we're thinking. And so Sarah had to run some errands and I'm in charge of the kids. And I realized like, man, I haven't seen Owen lately. So I go into our laundry room, which has a little desk on it. And Owen is just sitting there and he sat there for three hours, just sitting there and like building these things. And he's like, hey, dad, look. And he turns on this like little Ferris wheel made of balsa wood and batteries, apparently. And it was just like moving over and over. And I was like, that is so cool that you have the patience to be able to just sit and do that. 
So Owen, like those are some of the things about Owen, but, but the coolest thing about Owen is that Owen has the ability to walk into a room and everybody's automatically his friend, right? Hey, you guys have probably met people like this where you walk into a room and you're like, man, I want to go hang out with that person because he looks like my, he is my best friend if he knows it or not, right? So that's who, that's largely who Owen is. I actually spoke at a camp a couple of weeks ago, a bunch of junior hires, age 12 to 14, and Owen was nine at this point. And so we do like the typical camp speaker thing and I go and, you know, we have dinner as a family and we kind of get, our, get our, our, our bearings on the camp. Okay, this is where all these stuff are. And then we're like, all right, you guys can, boys, you guys can go explore. I don't think I saw Owen the majority of the rest of the week. Right, here's this nine-year-old that he would just like walk up to kids and start hanging out with them, right? That, like that childhood innocence of like, hey, you want to be best friends? Yep. And then it's like a blood oath made for the next 30 years of their life. Right, that's kind of what, kind of who, who Owen is. Like he, even during recreation where they're like competing and, and they're in a swimming pool and all these different things, like Owen's taking on dudes twice his size. He's like, I don't care. Like for the team, for the color blue. I'm like, bro, you got to chill out a little bit, Right. But he just loves people everywhere he goes. He wants to be in community with people. Even when uh, he's on the, on the pool deck, when he's swimming and that sort of thing. My favorite thing is to watch Owen in his relays, like on his team. And not just like him swimming, it's him cheering for the rest of his team. He has this really high-pitched, really like screechy scream that he always seems to do at the worst times. And and he does it for his team all of the time. I'm not even going to put you through it, like how it sounds this morning. But he just loves people absolutely incredibly well. Like I said, like with like that childlike kind of innocence. And sometimes, and I think we forget this, sometimes that's really all it takes in order for us to love people well. It's to just be there and be like, hey, I'm your friend. You are, what's your name? I don't, doesn't matter. I'm your friend. Like the amount of conversations I've had with my kids. We're like, hey, I made a new friend today. Cool. What's their name? I don't know. What? You have to start with that. <laughs> like start with a formal handshake. Hello, my name is Owen. Right? No, that's not how, like they just like, they're just friends with people. They just love people, specifically, specifically Owen. And it is so cool to be able to see, and, and he doesn't even know it yet, and he's not doing it intentionally yet to, like, to show that, that he loves God by loving people well or anything. Like It just naturally comes out of him because, because God is his creator, and God is the one who, who, who put that love in his, in his life. And so, so loving God and loving people and serving the world, like that is the starting point. That is the reason we do what we do. Right? We're not in the business of, of doing church to shape morality, even though that's a byproduct of church. Right? We're not, we're not in the business of doing church to, to, to just for the sake of social justice, though that should be a byproduct of the church is the idea of social justice. We're not in the business of church for like egotistical reasons to be able to pat ourselves on the back so we can say, look how good that we've done and all of those things. We are in the business of doing church because we want to love God to the best of our ability. That's why we're in the business of doing church. And I would guess that there are people in here who probably have some preconceived notions regarding the church. Even if you've been in church for a long time, maybe you have some preconceived notions about, about some of these things, and some of which, were, which, which are merited. 
Like these ideas that tell you that the church is maybe all about themselves. The church is about, about getting people out of poverty, which is a good thing, but that's not what the church should only be about. The church is maybe about making bad people good again, which again is a, is a good thing, but that's not what the church should, should mainly be about. The truth is, is, is none of those things should be what the church is about. We are in the business of doing church because we love God and we want to love other people enough to be able so other people can experience his love as well. And while we fail at that pursuit every single day, well, at least I do, while we fail at that pursuit most days, that is our goal, that is our intention, to love God, to love people, and to serve the world. And so in Mark chapter 12, verses 28 to 33, we get to a passage that we call the Great Commandment. This is what it says. One of the teachers of the law came and heard them debating. Noticing that Jesus had given them a good answer, he asked them, of all of the commandments, which is the most important? The most important one answer, Jesus, is this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all of your strength. And the cool thing is, is that we would be able to camp on these verses forever. There is no end to us being able to implement these answers. This is actually echoed from Deuteronomy chapter 6 as well. That over and over and over again, and this is oftentimes why people come to church in the first place, is I want to know how to love God better. Or I want to know what God maybe has in store for me. How is it that I can make my relationship better with God? And those are, like, those are good things. And loving God, it should consume us on a regular basis. Like when we wake up, we should ask ourselves, how is it that we are able to love God better today? And not just after you've had your coffee, because let's admit it, it's easier to love people after you've had your coffee. But how is it that I can love God better today? The cool thing is the story doesn't stop there. It continues on in verse 31. Kind of like a, Jesus gives us kind of like a bonus answer almost, because I'm sure the Pharisees are ready to jump back in onto Jesus at this point. They do their best to trap him. So you can turn it on in verse 31. The second is this. Love your neighbor as yourself. There is no commandment greater than these. Well said, teacher, the man replied. You are right in saying that God is one and there is no other, there is no other but him. To love him with all your heart, with all your understanding, with all of your strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself is more important than all burnt offerings and sacrifices. So the reality is, is that even though we could spend an entire eternity loving God, we could, we, could, we could never get to the end of how it is that we love God best. Like, and we get to, by the way, spend an eternity loving God. Loving God has all of these byproducts that come with it, like I said. Bad people become good people. People who, who, who are in poverty hopefully can find their way out of poverty with the help of the church. Right? All of these different byproducts that I talked about before. Loving God has all of those, even if we weren't inspecting it. The truth is, though, that loving God demands us to love people. Loving God doesn't demand all of those other byproducts, but loving God does demand that we love other people. Because when you decide to love God, whether you knew it or not, like you made that profession of faith, right? I admit, I believe, I choose to follow Jesus. Like, like when you made that commitment, that profession of faith, to love God, you actually now have no other option but to love people. Because you begin to recognize who God is. 
You begin to recognize what it is that God has done in your life, what he has done for you. As you dig into his word, you begin to understand that that not only is God for us, he wants everyone else to know him in a very real and a very intimate way as well. And so as you love Jesus, you want to do what it is that he commands of you. You want to do what it is that he commands of us. Teachers in the room, you had a great week, short week. Congratulations. You guys made it through. I think if you didn't make it through, you're probably not in here right now. Maybe you're with us online, teachers. Okay, but that being said, my wife was a teacher for a couple of years. And I just, this whole idea of like classroom discipline, like classroom management, like how do you manage all of these kids that are just like swarming your ankles and your waist all the time? Like how is it that you do that? Because when I grew up, I had two different types of teachers. I had teachers who demanded that we respect them because of their position of authority. And then I had teachers who I wanted to respect because I knew that they cared about me. There are two different modes there, right? And I'm a rule follower, so I'm always like, I'm going to listen to my teacher regardless of what type of teacher that they are. Okay, but that being said, I was more apt to want to do what the, the person who cared about me said when they said, hey, I want you to do this, it's like, yep, I want to do that. Why? Because I want to please them. I want to do things in such a way that is going to honor them, to know that as they love me, as they care about me, that I am also going to do my best to love them and care about them, which includes being obedient to the things that they would have for me. It's the same thing when we talk about our relationship with God. We have this God that we know is a loving God. We have a God who knows that that, that he wants to take care of us. He wants what is best for our lives. And so what is best for our lives that we are being obedient to him, I want to walk towards him. I want to do the things that he would ask me to do because I care most about loving God. So if I love God, God also demands me to love people as I begin to recognize it. So what's the nature of that love? Yeah, part of it is, is uh, uh, obedience, like I talked about. But this love, it's, it's no less than being transformed by a love for him. Us loving God, treasuring, admiring, delighting, being satisfied by this most beautiful treasure of all this relationship that we have for him. The nature of his love is really is in Philippians 3, chapter 8 where it says, I count everything is loss of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. I count everything else as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus as my Nothing else matters. My promotion doesn't matter. My paycheck doesn't matter. My family doesn't matter. That's a hard one. Nothing else in the world matters. I would count everything else as loss because of knowing Jesus Christ as my Lord. I would trade anything in the world simply to know who Jesus is. So because I know Jesus, because I love him, because I love God, I count everything else as loss in order to do what it is that he asks me to do. But here's the problem. The problem is, is we, maybe we get to that spot, and this is kind of how I grew up. It's like, God, I'll do anything for you anything for you. And I kept falling short over and over again, right? Like my alarm would go off at six and I'd be like, no, not going to spend time with Jesus this morning. Sleep is more important. And I would fail at those things. I'd be like, yep, I'll pray for you. And then I wouldn't pray for them. I'd see him again the next time. I was like, oh no, I didn't pray for him. I'll pray for him real quick right now. Okay. Yeah, I prayed for you. (laughs) Totally did. 
or I would just see myself like these relationships that I had or sin nature that I had, whatever it may have been, I would consistently fall short of those things. And then as I was falling short of those things, because I loved Jesus, there was like this guilt that I felt in my life. And I felt guilty because I just felt like I was never measuring up to what God wanted me to do, to what God would have for me. I'm not sharing my faith enough. I'm not doing all these different things enough. And so, so like as I grew up, there was like this guilty kind of feeling that I had in my life because I could just never measure up. And if that's the case for you, can I just say you're, we are looking at it incorrectly? You shouldn't feel guilty because you aren't enough. You should feel broken because you want to serve God better. And there's a difference in those feelings. It's not the same. And can I just say that being broken is a whole lot more humbling than feeling guilty. So we need to be able to get to that point. And we have to recognize that like our love comes from the creator of love. So in the same way that Owen walks into a room, he's like high-fiving people he's never met before. I'm surprised that kid hasn't had COVID 10 times from the amount of people that he touches and loves. But our love from other people should just be recognized. Our love for God, rather, should be recognized for other people as like, we, like it just gets poured out of us. Because love isn't something that naturally comes from inside of us, right? Ask any parent, We've talked about this before. If you have kids, you know love is not something that naturally comes out of your child, right? When those kids are born, when they come out for the first time, man, they are so needy. They're the worst. Have you ever had a baby ask to load the dishwasher after dinner for you? Probably not. And if they did, you know they did it wrong, right? Like it should, but, but legitimately, they come out and they're just like, they need to be fed, they need to be changed, they need sleep, and all they do is cry to get attention, right? They are so needy all the time, and, the, and it only gets worse before it gets better because then they learn how to talk, and their selfishness is confirmed because they say mine all of the time. They don't say please, they don't say thank you. Like, they do all of these things. You're like, you are just a selfish person. It's like, yeah, they are. You know why? Because they're two, dummy. And that's how, like, we don't come out loving None of us do. We don't come out of the womb knowing how to love people. Like that is instilled in us by our creator and comes alive in us as we make him the savior of our lives, as we choose to follow him every single day. And that is a radical love. It is a supernatural love. And so for the kind of love that God calls us to, the love that goes, you know, that loves our neighbor as much as we love ourselves, that has to come from him. And I'm not talking about loving your neighbor like just being nice as you, like you accidentally walk out to the mailbox at the same time. Like, oh, <laughs> hey, Frank, good to see ya. Cool, I'm gonna go back inside now and we won't talk again until my tree branch falls on our fence or something like that. Like it is a supernatural love. And so in Luke chapter 10, there's a story we call the Good Samaritan. If you've been around the church for a long time, you've probably heard of this story. If you haven't been around church for a long time, you probably know that phrase, Good Samaritan. I got called the Good Samaritan one time. Man, I was, it was, I was so happy. I was 20 years old, and I was going home from, uh, from school, and there was a guy on the side of the road, looked like he blew out his tire or something like that, and he's like trying to wave cars down. It was nighttime. It was probably like 9, 30, 10 o'clock at night. It was dark. I remember that. And so I'm like, I'm 19. I'm like, I'll be fine, right? And so I get out of my car, and I'm like, hey, are you okay? Can I help you with anything? And he's like, can I just use your cell phone? I'm like, yeah, sure, here's my cell phone. And he's talking and he's describing where we're at to the person on the other line. And, 
then he was like, yeah, um, this isn't my phone number. This is a good Samaritan's phone number that stopped and helped me. I was just like so proud of myself. And I was like, you good? And anything He's like, no, you can go. I appreciate it. So, you know, click my, my, uh, my flip phone close, uh, put it back in my pocket. And he was driving down the road. And then all of a sudden I got a phone call from that number that he had just called. And I was like, oh, yeah, I was already a good Samaritan. I don't need to answer that phone call. I put it back in my pocket like I was a terrible person. I was like, oh, yeah, I'm going to help this person. But he only gets one phone call. There's no way I'm answering that phone call again, right? So as we're looking at this story, no, there is, like, I am represented in this story. It's just not the good Samaritan person in this story. So this is what it says, starting in verse 30. It says, in reply, Jesus said, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. When he was attacked by robbers, they stripped him of his clothes, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down the same road, and when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. A priest. Verse 32. So too, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he traveled came where the man was, and when he saw him, he took pity on him. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he put the man on his own donkey, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day, he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. Which of these threes do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of the robbers? The expert in the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. Jesus told him, go and do likewise. So if you've grown up with this story or you've heard this story preached on numerous times, probably a couple things that we need to know. The priest and the Levite, these are the holy people. These are the people that should 100% have stopped and helped that person. Okay, this person, as far as we know, is most likely a Jewish person. There's nothing in there that says he's not a Jewish person or anything like that. But all we know is there was a person who was stranded on the side of the road And these people simply passed him up. There's conclusions that we can probably draw from it. Things that we know about the priests and the Levites in the New Testament. That while these guys understood what it is that they were supposed to do. They understood how to love God best. They understood how to to have Sabbath and not take so many steps to make sure that they weren't working on the Sabbath. Or doing all these things. Like they knew the rules. They knew how to play the game. And they were really good at playing the game when other people were watching. You notice that? Anytime that the, the Pharisees or the Levites or the teacher of the law, anytime any of those people come up and talk to Jesus, there's always a crowd with them. There's always a group of them. There's never just like one of them who's coming up to him. And the one time there is one of them who comes up to him, he has a life-changing conversation with Jesus as a matter of fact. There's always a group of them. And so, so these teachers, these Levites, these Pharisees, whatever, these guys are individuals who are now walking down the road. There's a guy who's bloodied and bandaged and bruised hanging, up on the, hanging out on the side of the road. He has nothing, was robbed, has no possessions. And notice there is no one there to see what these people are doing. And so the Levite, he's gone. Priest, He's gone. He actually passes on the other side of the road to stay as far away from him as possible. Because then maybe there's plausible deniability, right? Oh, I just didn't see him. He was way far on the other side of the road. But then a Samaritan, a person who was really despised by the Jews. There's no reason this person should be the hero of this story. Jesus here is obviously and clearly making a point. That, hey, th- like, you don't like this person. 
as he's talking to the teacher of the law. You shouldn't like this person, this Samaritan, this person that you would consider unclean simply because of the blood that courses through their veins, simply because of where he lives. You would consider this person less than. This is the person who went and bandaged the guy's wounds. Not only bandaged him, took care of him, threw him on his own donkey, went out of his way, took him to a place where he could get taken care of, and beyond just taking him to the place, he said, hey, look, I've got to go. Let me know what it costs to take care of this guy. I will come back and pay you the difference. Which of those three loved his neighbor best? That's what Jesus, that's the point that Jesus is is getting to here. And so even as I think to myself, oftentimes, hey, I'm going to stop and I'm going to help this guy. Man, this would look great. You want to use my cell phone? Yeah, use my cell phone. Here's my cell phone. And then no one's watching, five minutes down the road, no one's ever going to know. Yeah, no, they get one call. I got limited minutes. It's not nights and weekends. Same thing is happening. And so this good Samaritan phrase has, has really come to be understood as someone who goes above and beyond to help someone in their time of need. But someone's time of need isn't always like this big dramatic thing. And I think we forget about that oftentimes. We think that, oh, if I can show up, you know, after the miscarriage, or I could show up when someone gets, you know, diagnosed with cancer, or if I can show up when there's these big moments that happen in people's lives. Those moments are important. Hear me. And we, we, we should show up in those moments. But I say, I think we oftentimes just miss those smaller moments to love people well that could make a massive impact on their lives, and we don't even realize it. Right? Little things like, man, you know that uh, like an employee of yours or, or someone that you work with, they're just going to be slammed that day for whatever reason. And just go get them coffee. Right? Like how easy is that? And I'm not even talking like fancy bougie Starbucks coffee for six bucks, right? Like I'm not even talking about that. I'm talking about like just go to the break room and pour them a cup of coffee. The same like mud water that you're drinking. Like here you go. Hey, I know you got a long day. Here's, here's a second cup for you, or a fifth cup, depending on the time of day and the busyness of their schedule. No judgment here. But like those little things of just being willing to show up in people's lives so people can like just experience like patience when nobody else is patient with them that day, or experience compassion when no one is being compassionate towards them, or gentleness rather than like irritation or rudeness or harsh words or anything like that, simply so they know that they are loved. So our boys this week, they, uh, they went camping all week with their grandparents. It was great for Sarah and I. Uh, they, were <laughs> they were gone all week. They, they were gone for five days. They went camping. They had a blast up with grandma and grandpa. They did a bunch of fishing and hiking and all of that. I mean, they're telling us stories all the time, right? But I didn't realize how quiet our house was until they came home, right? Like our house was like silent all week, like deafening silence. It was wonderful, It was like I could hear my own thoughts, which is crazy, right? And so they came home, and all of a sudden, it was just like like I was getting frustrated with my kids simply for them existing in our house, right? There was no, like, there was no, like, major blow-ups. There was no, like, yelling or even arguing. They were all in a good mood, but they were just, like, breathing heavier, and I was like, you have to be quiet. 
stop, stop, chew your mouth when we're eating. Like there's noise coming from you, right? And I realized like in that moment, like, okay, our kids have been gone from us all week. Do I want to be like angry, frustrated, like, like, you know, angry dad as my kids come home because they're on my nerves and I can use like harsh words with them or a harsh tone with them and cut them down and, and make them think to themselves, okay, I need to listen to dad because he is an authority figure over me. Or I could choose the other option, which is simply to love my kids, to remind them, hey, we have rules when we are inside of the house, no breathing. Just kidding. <laughs> we have rules when we're inside of the house. I missed you. Give me a hug. Now go play in the pool. Yell and scream as much as you want. I had those two options in front of me. And I wish I could say I I chose the loving option every single time. And sometimes it falls in the middle and sometimes I'm less patient and sometimes I am more patient. But really what my kids need is to know that I love them deeply, even in my discipline of them. That I love and care for my kids deeply. I mean, even when Jesus saw the multitudes, Jesus is moved to compassion for them. That's in Matthew 9, 36. Am I being compassionate to my kids? Am I being compassionate to my fellow man? Or do, do their quirks, their habits, their weaknesses, even my own frust- frustrations with them, does their sin become a point of contention for me? Like, do I harden my heart to others? And in my pride and in my high-mindedness think that I am better than them, do I write them off? Or have like demands on them that they should be in certain way in order for them to get my love? Or do I esteem them better than myself and become a servant to all of them, like we are called to? To all of them, not some of them. Which means that we have, to, we, like, we have work to do for those who are around us every single day. All right, we've got to love people when they are kind and we get along well with them. And those, man, those are easy people. Those are fun people to love, right? Like, I am so excited to see this person today. But we also have to love people when they're nasty and they're unlovable. And that's not as easy, but we have to love people when they disagree with us fundamentally on politically issue, political issues as well. Careful, midterms are coming up. What are you gonna post to your Facebook page? We have to love people when they worship a different God than we do. We have to love people when when they are in the midst of a sinful lifestyle that the Bible speaks out against. We have to love people well, even when we simply don't feel like loving them, which can I just tell you might be the largest obstacle in all of these things, is your own emotion towards loving other people, your own feelings in the day. I'm too tired. I'm too stressed out. No, not today. No, but I'm never, like, as soon as I get, like, up my to-do list a little bit more, then I will start loving people. And I get it. Like, it's exhausting, and it's incredibly difficult to be able to do these things, but it isn't about us. And the more that we talk with people and interact with people, the messier it becomes. You think that Samaritan, as he was walking down the road, like wanted to bandage this guy up and take care of him and throw him on his donkey and go to that inn and stay the night at that inn and then take care of that person's expenses the next day? Probably wasn't on his to-do list. But the reality is, is he happened upon a situation where love was required of him. And so because of that, he loved that person well. And it's messy. 
It's always messy. Ministry is messy. If you have said yes to Jesus, it's messy. I've said this before, but there's a, a famous saying in ministry where it says, ministry would be really easy if it weren't for the people, which is true. I mean, I think probably most jobs would be really easy if it weren't for the people. I mean, we'd have a whole lot less to do, but man, we would get stuff done. I don't know what we would get done, but we would get stuff done. Why? Because people are messy. Lives are messy. There's never like a, like a perfect cutout of how things should be able to look and work all the time. And so loving Jesus is about getting your hands dirty and doing the hard work of entering into the messiness of people's lives and saying, look, I know where you are and I know a way out and it's Jesus. And that's hard for us to do. Loving our neighbor is second in importance only to loving God. Because loving people is really just an extension of loving God. Notice it's the great commandment when it talks about it. It's not the great commandments. That's one commandment wrapped up in two. The teacher of the law asked Jesus, what is the greatest commandment? And he's like, here's two that are both the greatest commandment. Jesus couldn't have given us the greatest command without also giving us that second greatest command because the two, they're completely and totally entwined. Loving people, for those of you who are taking notes, loving people is the visible manifestation of loving God. That's it. Matthew 25, 40, it says, the king will reply, truly I tell you, whatever you did for the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. So if you're here and you're like, you know what, no, I signed up to love God. And that, like, that's your MO. Like, I signed up to love God, this whole loving people business, like, I've got enough people loving my life. I'm here to make my relationship with God closer. I'm sorry, you're sadly mistaken. It's not an option. This is a command from God. A command from the person from the being that said, I love you first, I love you best. And it's not even an option regarding who to love. Like if you're close to them, if you just met them, if your kid is on their baseball team and they're the parent who yells way too much at the umpire, like sorry, you gotta love them. You don't have a choice. And I think the church oftentimes forget that. that like, like we are supposed to stand out from other people because of our love, not because of our convictions. And that's a hard thing for us, specifically in the Western church, right? Like, we want people to know what our convictions are. We want people to know what are right and people to know what is wrong. Like, we want people to know those things. But John 13, 35 says, by this, everyone will know that you are disciples if you love one another. Not if you yell your convictions at one another. Not if you say, my way is correct and nobody else's way is correct because this is the way my mind works. Everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. You know why it doesn't matter if you yell your convictions? Like why Christians won't stand out if we talk about our convictions more than we talk about love? Because everybody has convictions and most of them are ridiculous. Everybody, it's some matter more than other people's, right? You, you wanna know like how many convictions people have? Just look up nonprofits. Right? There are so many nonprofits for so many ridiculous convictions out there. It's like, hey, you do you. That's your conviction, great. You want to know how to not stand out? Talk about your convictions more than you show people that you love them. That's how you blend in. Like, you know what, we're just going to yell our convictions at people. Instead of just simply like loving people well. 
The Bible tells us that people will know that we are Christians by the way that we love. That's what makes people sit up and take notice of the fact that the Bible is not only true, but the Bible works. That's how we cross that bridge from truth to the Bible working. So as a church, like, what's our goal? How do we love people best? I think there's a couple ways that we love people really, really well. The first is we serve the world. We go out and serve them. We're doing that all month. Like all month, we're going out in the community. We're doing best to serve people who are forgotten about or people who just need that extra little bit of love, right? Like this week, we're talking about we love first responders. We are finding, we've already found someone, a wife of a first responder who they've had an incredibly difficult time. He is currently fighting a fire up yonder. She's got a couple of kids and we're gonna do our best to put together like this massive gift basket for this lady and just show her love. Like, hey, no strings attached. We don't want anything in return. We just want you to know that we love Jesus and like this is a visible manifestation of his love because we just know you're going through it right now. So this is how we want to love you. So I think that's one way, you serve the world. I think the other way that we need to show love to everybody is simply by doing life together. If you go back to that verse, that talks about that they will know that we are Christians by how we love. It doesn't say love the world. It says love one another, actually. So people will know that we are Christians by the way that Christians treat other Christians. So stop pointing the finger at other people, specifically inside of the church. We are on the same team. Remember that. All of us are on the same team, and we all have the same end goal in mind, which is what? Making more disciples. That's our goal. And we don't always have to see eye to eye. We don't always, always have to be like, you know, yep, I ha- yep, I'm on board with that 100%. Just be on board with it like 80%. I don't care. Just be on board with making disciples. But I think the problem is, is that oftentimes we confuse our best discipleship strategy. We think the best discipleship strategy is invite somebody to church and let them hear a pastor, a professional Christian, talk about Jesus. I think that's important because we're here. If I didn't think that was important, we'd shut down Sunday mornings and just go straight into small groups. I think that's important. But can I just say that I think that the more influential piece of introducing people to Jesus is by introducing those people to your community. Not this community, your personal community, your small group community, your familial community. Those people who love Jesus just as much as you do so they can see and interact with people who love each other with the supernatural love of Jesus. I think that is the single, probably most potent way to introduce somebody to Jesus. Why? Because they will know us by our love, how we love one another. Growing up, we were always that house that uh, everybody was open to come to right? You guys, probably some of you guys had that house. Didn't matter what time I would call my parents. I would just be like, hey, so-and-so, can they come and stay the night? They're like, yeah, absolutely. I don't remember a single time my parents saying no to somebody coming and staying at our house or eating a meal or anything like that, ever. And Sarah and I want that for our kids as well. Okay, but me and my dad, we talked a couple times about it, like as I was going through high school and that sort of thing, and he just consistently would come back to the idea of like, yeah, where else would I rather have them be? And not just for safety reasons, not just because they made a poor decision and they wanted somewhere safe, but because they wanted, like my parents wanted them to be able to see what a semi-functional family looked like most days. They wanted them to see that, hey, this is what love looks like. And most of them came from great families, 
Who, they, man, they saw love in their families as well, that same supernatural love that, that, that was like bestowed to us by our creator. Like they saw that in their own families as well. And they came over here and they saw that love in my family growing up. And so my dad was always like, yeah, why wouldn't I want them to be in the midst of community that like, they can see that love of Jesus? And unfortunately, a lot of this Christian discipleship, it deals with what you need to know, not who you need to be with. And that's a, like, that's, a, that's a hard thing. That's sad because if we get the relationships right, the information is going to follow. If we connect people in real gospel community, they will learn. But the opposite isn't always true. If all we're concerned with is, hey, come to church on Sunday morning, open your Bible, memorize this verse, and then leave, then there's a really good chance they're not going to be in, like, invested in community anywhere. So we want to plug them in. We want them to be part of, of community. But we're too often only concerned with conversion and information download. We don't take community and relationship-based relationship discipleship seriously enough. And we need to be more about that. Like God is in community as well. The whole Trinity, right? Open up to Genesis chapter 1. God is in community. Jesus called the disciples, and even he had a weird one in their small group, right? So remember that in your small groups. It's okay to have a weird one. Just don't let them sell you for 30 pieces of silver. And the early church, they met together daily, all the time. The early church was in community. Right? There's a story in the book of Acts where pa <laughs> Pastor Paul, Paul the apostle, who was also a pastor, so my theology isn't wrong, but Paul is teaching to a house church, and he's going on and on and on and on. He's going on so long that there's this kid who's up in the window. He falls asleep, falls out of the window, and dies so I always feel better about my messages. As long as nobody didn't die, then I'm good for the week. If this kid falls out the window, dies, Paul goes down, brings this kid back to life, comes back up. You know what he does? Like, if it's me, I'm canceling church for the rest of the day. I'm like, hey, somebody died, so we're done today. Paul kept meeting. Like, they kept teaching. Like, he just kept going, right? Why? Because they're in the midst of community with each other. They're like, yeah, God showed up again. Yeah, a kid died because Paul bored him to death, literally. But he was brought back to life, and so we kept doing church with one another. Why? Because community. And the issue tends to be this consumer mentality that's rampant in our culture. It gets permeated, this understanding of, of community. We tend to focus on what we can get out of community rather than what we can get back to community. And I get it. We even sell it that way. Like, get into a small group so you can be closer to Jesus, Right? Like, that's the equation. And if you're in a small group, you're going to have community, and because you're in community, you'll love Jesus better. Here's the problem. It doesn't always work that way. Actually, for a lot of you in here, maybe those of you who've been Christians for 20, 30, 40, 50 years, who you think to yourself, you know what? I don't need to be in community. You're probably right. You don't need to be in community, but we need you in community for people who don't yet know Jesus well. And so that's the other side of the equation, is community isn't just for you. Community is for those other people that need to know what community looks like in a very healthy and a very real way, because personal growth doesn't happen in isolation. It's the result of interaction, interactive relationships. Man, small groups are, like, like they offer like, the, the ability to foster changes in character and spiritual growth. 
I legitimately think small groups are the way to build the most healthy version of a church that you can build. You want to know how to grow a church faster than any other church? Fire me, get a better preacher on stage. Fire Kyle, get a better, he's leaving anyway, get a better worship pastor on stage. Fire Jeff, get someone better at doing announcements. <laughs> it's impossible. You want to know how to grow a church? Replace your staff with people who are better than those who are already on staff. It'll blow up, especially the preacher position. Right? You get a senior pastor who's like, man, he's a theological giant who can communicate everything that he wants to do and most of his, most of his metaphors aren't about his kids. That's how you grow a church fast. Blow it up. I guarantee it would be one of the biggest churches in town. I also guarantee it would not be the healthiest. Why? Because health doesn't start here. You see health and development in the midst of community. That's why Jeff and I, four years ago, decided that we were going to be the best church at small group in Kings County. That's still our goal. We want to have more small groups than any other church in Kings County. Why? Because that's where transformation happens. We want to make disciples. We want leaders who are desperate to make more leaders to get into groups and let the Spirit work through their gifting so they, in turn, can make more disciples. That's our goal. And it's not just so we can grow bigger. It's not going to be like, oh, yeah, we're going to fill up the room four times. I don't care. I prefer not preaching four times on a Sunday. You know what I care about? The health of the church. Making disciples. And do disciples make more disciples? Well, they should. So in turn, should the church grow? Yeah, it should. But I'm more concerned with the overall health of the church. And if you haven't been in a group, like, I get it. It feels scary and it can feel threatening to kind of allow yourself to be known or to invest in knowing someone else at a deep level. It is so much easier and more convenient to stay on the surface, to stay on the, the very top of what you have to, what your expectation is here. Like you can come in and out of here and not talk to anybody if you try, right? The greeters will try real hard to make you talk, but even then you can get away with like a smile and a nod and be like, okay, they acknowledge me. We'll go sit down now. Like you can, you can do it. And it's easier to go to our outreach events, to go to our programs, to be a regular attender and never proceed beyond that. But if you're sitting here this morning and you're thinking to yourself, what is my next step spiritually? What do I need to do in order to move forward spiritually in my life? Or I'm feeling spiritually drained or I'm feeling spiritually filled up and so I, I need to figure out how to pour into other people. I, I would really ask you to consider joining one of our groups. And it doesn't have to be ours. Like, I don't care. You want, you want to go to another church, a small Go to another church, a small group. I don't care. Be in community with other Christians so people can see what real love looks like. That's my concern. Not that our numbers are padded by more people in small groups. Dave Fox is in like 17 small groups. And we count them for every single one, pastor math. But when we take the risk of being authentic with, with, with a small group of people, we can experience God's grace, we can experience God's love coming through other people, which leads us to, to freedom, which leads us to transformation, right? We want to spend time building that environment that allows true relationships to flourish. Can you imagine what the, ch what the church would look like if the church became known for loving people rather than just simply being against so many things? I'm not saying that we abandon our doctrine that we'll continue to stand firm on, obviously. I'm saying that the church should be a group of people who wants to love others. 
And an integral part of that is being known by a small group of people who believe the same thing that you do. And this goes from top to bottom. And I'll finish with this. It goes from top to bottom. Our kids, ministry, and birth on up, you, like the, we put them in small groups back there. Like our first through fifth graders, man, they like sing songs, they do some crafts, the volunteers control the chaos, they listen to a message. Then after the message, like as you're picking up your kids, you'll see like four different colored mats around the room. Like they go to small groups after that and they process what it is that they have just been taught. Like we think it's that important that no, you need to be in the midst of group and community now. We do it with our students as well. Like they listen to the message, they break off into small groups that are both age and gender specific. Like, so I don't care if you're five years old or 105 years old, like community is necessary for you and for other people that you will flow into. So where are you, where are you plugged in? Because we truly believe that disciples are called to be in community. We feel like one of the best ways to be in community is through our groups. And I get it, it feels kind of salesman-y, like at the end. Like, oh, he just wants us to join our groups. No, I don't care. Like I said, I don't care if you join our groups, join a group. Go to Quinnity and join a group. I don't care. Get in a group somewhere and establish community. But I'll say this. If you want to join a group with us this morning, the hope is and the expectation is that you will become closer to Jesus because of that or lead people closer to Jesus because of that. Those are the goals. So just some logistics as you go from here. There's a whole bunch of pieces of paper out there with QR codes on them. Go scan a QR code. Sign up for a group. You want a women's group? There's women's groups and men's groups inside. There's mixed groups outside, couples groups, all the different kinds of groups that you want. And most of our groups start the Wednesday after Labor Day. Wednesdays don't work? That's cool. We got groups on not Wednesdays as well. Find them. All the information is out there. Scan the QR code. You don't want to scan a QR code? That's fine. Jeff has a sign-up sheet. He can, he can write it down for you. You want to learn how to scan a QR code? Don't ask Jeff. He's, he's too old. Um, I'm just kidding. I'm going to get it from him on that one. But go, like community is so important to establishing disciples and becoming part of a discipleship process. Amen, church? Let's pray. God, thank you for today. And God, thank you for establishing community for us and what that looks like, even in the Trinity, what it looks like to love other people well and in the message with the Good Samaritan, what it looks like, your command to love God and love people all of those things that we just try to wrap up. And so often we try to do it ourselves, God, but, but the reality is you created us for biblical community, for gospel-centered community, people who want to know Jesus better. And so whether it's us who want to know him better, us who know him really, really well and want to pour that into other people, regardless of where it is, God, I pray that, man, we would have a, a lively group life that our small groups would be bursting at the seams because community would be that important to us. So Father, we pray for that today. Also, for those, maybe you're just thinking like this idea of community sounds crazy because I'm lonely. Like my life is lonely right now and I feel like I have nowhere to turn and maybe it's the church. If that's you and you have yet to place your faith in Christ, to come and be a part of our community, I would just ask that you make a profession of faith where you simply talk about the idea that I, I am a sinner lost and I believe that Jesus went to the cross for me. If that's you today, with heads still bowed and eyes still closed, you can just simply repeat after me. 
Say, Father, A, I admit that I'm a sinner in need of a Savior, that I fall short every single day, but B, I believe that you sent your Son to die on a cross for me. And C, I would choose to follow you every single day. That I would choose to live in community with you and with others every single day. We love you, Father. It's in your Son's name we pray. Amen.